You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 142. It doesn't matter if your lead character is good or bad. He has to just be interesting and he has to be good at what he does. David Chase. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft, it's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Well, guys, today I have a very, very special guest. On the show, we have the legendary writer, director, and showrunner, David Chase. Now, you might recognize his work. He did a little show called The Sopranos, which literally changed television from that point on. It's before Sopranos and after Sopranos. Without David Chase in The Sopranos, you would not have Breaking Bad or Dexter, Mad Men, or any of Game of Thrones, any of these shows that really push the envelope when it comes to you rooting for the bad guy, rooting for an anti-hero. That was never done prior in network television, really never done before The Sopranos, and definitely not the way he did it. And uh, you know, I had an absolute pleasure talking to him about his craft, uh, how he came up with The Sopranos, and about his new movie, which is the prequel to The Sopranos, The Many Saints of Newark, which I had the pleasure of watching. And if you are a Sopranos fan, you're going to like it. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with David Chase. I'd like to welcome to the show David Chase. Thank you so much, David, for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Nice to see you. Thank you, my friend. So, you know, I'd like to just start off with how did you get started in the business? How did you, what was your first entry into this business? Uh, I went to film school. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I co-wrote a script, a spec script which our film, which our screenwriting teacher sent to a TV producer named Roy Huggins, who had created Maverick. You know what that is? Oh, of course, yeah, with uh, James, um, oh, I forgot his last name. Gardner, no. James Gardner, yeah. Yes, Maverick, Maverick and Run For Your Life and a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. And he liked the script. My friend had given up and got back to Chicago. And like a year later, um, this guy called me, or I don't, I don't forget how he got, yeah, he got in touch with me. The Universal got in touch with me and said to call him, and he hired me to do an episode. And, and that was my professional writing job. Now, how did, but what made you want to become a writer? And what made you want to become, be a filmmaker in general? Um, well, Something was drawing, after a certain age, in high school, I think, something was drawing me to 
what we now call show business. <laughs> right. And and we called it that then. But it wasn't show business that was drawing me. It was I didn't realize it then, but it was art, I guess. We didn't say it was pop art, but it was art. Um because of things like the Twilight Zone. Mm, quite sure. Um but mostly it was the Beatles and the Stones that and Dylan that got me interested in creating things. And I wanted to be a rock and roll performer for a long time. Um, I played the drums and I was also lead vocalist in this nothing band that never went, went anywhere. And at the same time, I was, I had switched schools and I was going to school and no, no, I remember now. See, you're going to regret this. Um, uh, I went to a school, a college in North Carolina called Wake Forest College, which is now Wake Forest University. And it was a very, I don't know why I went down there. It was a, it was a mistake. Uh, it was the South in 1963. And the Klan was active and all those bad things were going on. And I don't think there was one black student. There was one black student in the freshman class. And I believe he was from Africa. And gambling wasn't allowed on campus. Dancing wasn't allowed on campus. Drinking wasn't allowed on campus, and playing cards was not allowed on campus. It was, uh, it was the Southern, I don't know whether they owned it or, it was affiliated with the Southern Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. And somehow or other, on Friday nights, so you can imagine. Well, nothing you to do. Well, you, here's the thing. It, it was still, it was a good college. I mean, the teaching was good. It wasn't antediluvian, you know. We're not talking about Jerry Falwell Academy or whatever. <laughs> uh, and on Friday nights, I don't know who did it or why, they had a foreign film night. And so I saw, um, will you name it, <laughs> all the ones you need to see. I saw eight and a half. Um, Kurosawa, Fellini, yeah. Yeah. I, just, I mean... I don't know how many weeks you're in the semester, but I saw one every week. And I, it was, I was completely blown away. I mean, I had liked movies since I was a kid, and I liked television, you know. I just liked it. Um, and maybe always wanted to be part of something like that. Um, so I saw, saw those movies, and then comes Bob Dylan, and then comes... Uh, the Beatles, and within a few months, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and that, to me, was art. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. And I had seen one Fellini film uh, at the age of 15 or 16. It was part of a trilogy. I forget what it was called, but the, his part was called the Something of Doc, the temptation of Doctor Antonio. Anyway, mm-hmm. I had seen a movie like that. I, I couldn't conceive. It was just so wonderful. It was so imaginative. It was so out there. Explain <laughs> uh, <laughs> it. I mean, I always loved movies, but I had never seen a movie like that. 
So all those years that you were working in, uh, especially in the early years, working in the writers' rooms uh, on on shows um, like The Rockford Files and and things like that, did you? What was the biggest lesson you took out of working in a writers' room, like? you know, either tips or tricks to survive in a writer's room or thrive in a writer's room or how to crack a story. What is that lesson that the one thing that you took from the early years? Well, I did not work in writer's rooms until, until I got to Northern Exposure. Okay. There there were no writer's rooms at the time when I was starting. The Rockford House was written by Stephen Cannell, Mm -hmm. Juanita Bartlett, me, and occasionally Gordon Dawson. Um, There was no writer's rooms. And our whole way of breaking story was different. And before my time, I guess when I was still a kid, the standard, I guess the Writers Guild definition of television was there was a producer, a story editor, and like for uh, the Defenders, you know what that is? I remember the Defenders, yeah. The Defenders or Naked City or mm-hmm. whatever it was. There was a producer, a story editor, and, and all the writers were hired from a freelance world of freelance writing. And then it got more and more group-oriented as time went on. Did you like the older way or the writer's room way? Uh, I think I like the writer's room way, uh, honestly, because you could you were swapping stories and memories. I mean, the other way was great too. But when you sat down to break a story, that's what you did. You talked about the story, um, and we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It had very little to do with your real life. Mm. But writers' rooms, for whatever reason, at lunch or even whatever it was, people would start to bullshit, start to shoot the shit. And that was always fun, obviously. It's like, you know, like seven old guys hanging out at a gas station in Virginia, you know? Um, And that's where a lot of the stories would come from, is if you and I were in with six other people, you tell a story about what happened to you when you crashed the car into your father's station wagon or whatever, and that becomes a story somehow. Not in that form, but of course, it becomes a story. And I, I really like I liked the socialization of the writer's room. Now, when you uh, when you had the idea for the Sopranos, how did the Sopranos come to to life in in general? Um, it came to life because. My mother, Norma Chase, was um, I, th- I would say mentally ill. Okay. Um, and she took care, I mean, she wasn't like institutionalizable, mm-hmm. but she took care of me. She worried about me. She was a good mother. Mm-hmm. She did the job. But she was full of fears, obsessions, uh, hatreds, and all that, which was passed down to me. 
and also which were many of them which were ludicrous and I would tell people stories about my mother and I would always get a laugh and my wife said to me when God we were maybe when I was in my late 20s so you got to write something about your mother someday you got to write a show about your mother and I, I didn't, didn't have any idea of how to go about that and then I, I, later on I was doing a show uh, I was I had created and was running called uh, Almost Grown and one of the writers Robin Green said you ought to write a series about your mother uh, like a producer with a mother a troublesome mother and I I heard that, but I thought, who wants to see that, a TV producer and his mother? It's like a sitcom, if anything. Um, and then I realized, well, maybe if it was a tough guy, if it was a guy in the mafia and his mother, maybe that would be good. And I tried to pitch that as a movie with Robert De Niro and Anne Bancroft. And there wasn't much interest, and my agent told me, Forget about it. Mob comedies are going nowhere. <laughs> uh, and mob movies. So I let it be, and then someone, years later, when I was signed with a company called Brillstein Gray to develop TV shows, they told me that they had thought, how would I like... They said I had a great TV series inside, inside me. Mm -hmm. I had never thought of and didn't want. I wanted to be in the movies. I was in television because I'd gotten in there and... And, and took the check, took the money. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't want to be there. I wanted. To, I was always writing movie scripts on spec. Um, so they said, how about do a TV version of The Godfather? And I said, no, I have no interest in that. And I thought, The Godfather's been done. You know, a bunch of guys with long coats and 50s cars. And, and then I was driving home and I thought, you know, Remember that movie about the, the mid-level mobster with a, mo a troublesome mother who tries to kill him because she he put her in a nursing home? I thought, maybe, maybe that would be a TV show. And about him and his family and his work. And maybe that would work in TV because it's got a lot of interesting women in it. And TV, in many ways, is kind of a, or was, uh, a... a woman's medium. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I thought. Um, and so we pitched it and it got it to Fox. They bought it. I did a script. They didn't buy that. But two years went by. Um, Brad Gray, the head of the company, went to um, Chris Albrecht at HBO, told him the story, pitched it to him. I went there and then Pitched it also in my version. They bought it. And so when you when you started doing the the, it seems to me from watching the series that I mean you were breaking rules left and right. I mean with the you know with Tony Soprano as a protagonist and and, and the anti-hero in television. It was kind of like not really there was nothing like that on, on network television before. No, nothing like that before. And nothing you either. and you didn't just sit on that. You kept pushing. You kept like episode five specifically of college, um, which is one of my favorite episodes. It's really a game changing episode because of the way Tony. This is the first time you see the main, the character of a TV series do some extreme violence on screen, no no fluff, 
Um, I, I, and I've heard from from other interviews you've done that the, <laughs> that the uh, the studio HBO was like, you're gonna you're gonna destroy this show before you even get started. <laughs> uh, they were very Chris Albrecht, who who never gave me a, a moment's aggravation about anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and said some very smart things when we were getting started. Chris Albrecht was really angry. And I said, well, you had the script. You know, that's the purpose of giving you the script. So you read it and say, they at that time, before we spend all this money, stop. Well, I just, it didn't dawn on me until I saw it on the screen. And I, I, anyway, yeah, that's how it happened. And, 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 I, and I also noticed that you love to um, do kind of almost one-offs, uh, kind of like episodes that are standalone that are not specifically about the overarching plot of the season, which is also against the grill against the grain as well, because normal, normal shows, at least prior to Sperano's would, you know, every episode had to move things along, but you almost went into character development in like specifically that episode college. You know, it really didn't have anything to really do with the overarching plot, no, that's, but that's but the development of Tony Soprano and his daughter's relationship uh, yeah. is is game changing. Is that is that, did you did you did you love going into this when you were doing the series to do these standalones just to kind of explore characters? Oh yes, I did. Well, see, my my whole thing was um, okay. I've got a they, they want me to do 13 episodes of this thing. But what I can do, what I want to do, is 13 little movies that are just like movies, but with this show. And I think it was, I don't know, it was HBO or Realstein Gray or whoever it was said, no, the, sh- the, 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 um, the episodes should tie together. It should be a, an overall plot in the... Um, in the season. And I was really against that. I don't want to do that. It's, I said, it's going to be like Dallas, like a fucking soap opera. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Right. And I don't know whether they talked me into it or I, I just knuckled under. And actually that, you know, they were, it, it, I think we really made something of that. I think it became one of the best parts of the show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But you, but when you're doing all of this, I mean, you're, you're really going against the grain on, on so many things of television. I mean, I, I, when you were doing you know, the, first- because you said something like the normal show, all the episodes would have to be connected. Not true. Most television, the episode, it's the same fucking characters, but the episodes are not connected. Mm-hmm. They're just, I don't know, Maggie and David fall in love. And then next week, Maggie and David are involved. <laughs> yeah, but like you were saying, like Dallas, like soap operas. It was kind of like that kind of overarching yeah. thing is what I was yeah. talking about. But when you were in the middle of season one, when you know, did you know that you were pushing and breaking these rules that had been in place for so long with these characters? Did you, did you consciously understand that you were really just, I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want and, and I'm just going to go for it. Yes, I did. 
That's exactly. So you're literally just like, I know what I'm doing, and I'm just going to push the envelope to see how far I can push it before someone stops me. Uh, that's true, except for I did not say I know what I'm doing. <laughs> no, no, seriously, what I said was, okay, put your money where your mouth is, and uh, it's all a big experiment, and that's what life is like. So you just that's, went in, yeah. You just rolled, just kind of like, okay, let's go. We'll see what happens. Oh, um, yeah, I, I had been in the TV business a long time, and I was so fed up, and I hadn't gotten. I hadn't gotten my dream come true, which was to make movies. Right. Um, and I'd been in TV a long time. I was thoroughly fed up and disgusted with network television. And I was, what, I was like 54 years old or something. And I thought, you know what? If it doesn't work, if it doesn't work. Um, you'll have to come back and try something else if they'll let you back in. Um, so this was your swing at the plate, is what you're saying. This was basically a swing at the plate. That was it. That was my swing at the plate. And I, and <clears throat> well, I'm trying to keep the baseball analogy alive, but it's either well, is either. I mean, if you, when you take big swings like that, which I'm so glad you did, but when you take big swings like that, you could easily strike out and then kicked out and get kicked out of the ballpark, which could have very easily happened with this show, or you right. could hit a grand slam. Which is what happened. Right. Yeah, there. Yeah, right. And, and right. It, which happens more often, a grand slam or getting escorted out, three to nothing, <laughs> or getting escorted out of the game period and make sure that one you can't play anymore anywhere. Um, now, I just love to hear your opinion on this. What is the job of a writer in network television today? What should they be? What should their goal be? What is the job of a writer in network television today? Story-wise, story-wise, or what, you know, just in the, in the craft of it, not as much the actual technical job, but the, the craft of it. What should they be striving for? Well, I mean, the way you phrase it, if it's a job, mm -hmm. and that means you've been hired to do the job, You have to. You have to give them some of what they want. That's why you're there. Um, no, that's not why you're there. No, yes, it is. I mean, you're there because they saw something, which they think could be beneficial to them. Mm -hmm. So you need you need to be aware of that. Um, But you have to express yourself. That's your your. They wouldn't want you to. They wouldn't want to say this. Your job, if they're paying you for it, is to express yourself the best way you can, as completely and thoroughly and honestly. In in the entire run of the series, was there an episode that you said, ah, "I think I might have gone too far"? No, not one. You just. And there were some where I said, nah, "I don't." I don't like this as much as other ones. Mm -hmm. uh, the Italian the trip to Italy probably could have done without that. But uh, no, I never thought we oh, we've got too far. Never. And I also, and I know, I mean, one of the more controversial parts of the entire series was the ending. I personally love the ending because 
of what <laughs> the ambiguity of, of it. And that he, I know everybody wanted to see Tony's face in a bowl of marinara, but did they? Is that many what did, wanted? many did, many did. But you see, that's the thing. It's so, it's like you're either on one camp or the other, but I just love that you left it open to the interpretation of the viewer. And I love um, the song that you chose as well. At the end, which was a nice <laughs> nod. Um, well, you know, Stephen Van Zandt, who played Silvio, and, you know, was a guitarist in, in the E Street Band, mm -hmm. um, was in Florida when the last show aired. And he had booked an appearance the next morning on a, on a talk show, a radio talk show. And he, all he did was defend and fend off all this criticism, people cursing at him. That's horrible. And, you know, motherfucker this, and we got robbed and all that stuff. And finally he said, uh, all right, well, what's your ending? Uh, did you want Tony to be killed? Well, no, but did you want Carmelo to be killed? No, but uh, <laughs> did you want him to get away with it all? No, but I mean... Well, what's your what's your great ending? Let me hear it. And most of them just, you know, some of them went away saying, "Yeah, I see what you're saying now." I'm sure what they were really thinking was, "I'm not the professional writer. Don't ask me what I would have done. David Chase should have done what he was supposed to do." But nobody knew what that was. And honestly, as much as it's it's kind of you know divisive, you, you're absolutely right. Like, did you want Tony to get away with it? Did you want him to die? Did you like? There's no way to make everyone happy. There's just no way. No. Well, no. many people have made everyone happy. You've seen The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but with a, with a show, with show endings in general are very difficult to pull off. I mean, did you, when you were going into that last episode, what was, I mean, the, I, mean I, I can only imagine the pressure that you were under uh, just because of the fans and everybody and it was the biggest show on HBO and all this stuff. Like, how do you feel as a creator when you're, ending something that you created well the show was so popular right and it was such a you know at that period of time you'd read a news people would always in a newspaper would be an editorial that's what tony soprano would have done or uh that guy behaves just like one of the soprano you kept hearing that all over the place Sopranos, Sopranos, Sopranos. It was a, it was a phenomenon, really, not just a TV show. Mm -hmm. And I guess that gave me a lot of balls. That so because of the success, it gave you the 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 wind yeah. underneath those wings. And most likely, had it not been a big success, it would have probably been more angering to a lot of people. I don't know who knows what I would have done out of anger and disappointment and just nihilism. Did, when did you realize that, or did you ever realize while you were making the show that it's kind of changed the game a bit? Because after, obviously years after all these other great shows with anti-heroes like Breaking Bad and Mad Men and Dexter, which were some of the writers worked with, with you on your show, at what point did you kind of realize, like, I think I might have changed the trajectory of of television? I mean, that's a fairly large statement to say. And maybe you don't want to say it, but many people have said it. Did you ever realize that you're like, 
maybe I've given other creators, I've opened the door for other creators to explore these kind of characters. Well, that's a hard one. Um, I guess I did feel that way. Good. This is, other people can now do more interesting stuff. But what I also saw was like a lot of like copying The Sopranos. I don't mean like plagiarism, but just not doing something really like The Sopranos was way off the mark for network television. And I was hoping, I guess, that people would start to do things that were way off the mark. But they didn't really, you know, it was good shows, but um, I did feel that. I felt glad that something had cracked and couldn't be replaced. Um, I did, I did feel that way. But I remember saying at the time in print, which is also true, I don't take responsibility for any of those shows and I don't take any blame either. <laughs> that's a great that's a great way of looking at it. Now, what made you want to go back to the world of the Sopranos with uh, the Many Saints of Newark? How did you why did you how well, did that come to be? You know, in 2012, coming off the Sopranos, the Sopranos was over in 2007, mm -hmm. and my dream was coming true. I was hot, and I was <laughs> going to be able to do a movie or two, and I could do anything I wanted to do. I remember my agent telling me that back in 2004. You're a brand now. You can do it. Whatever you want to do, you'll be able to do. So we reached the end of The Sopranos, and I thought, well, what do I want to do? And... Um, I wanted to do the story semi kind of autobiographical about a rock and roll band in New Jersey that never makes it. And I wanted to do that. And I thought people would like it. And I got a chance to do it because Brad Gray, who had been an executive producer with me on the show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, on Sopranos was now head of Paramount Studios, and he gave me the money to do that movie. I don't think any other studio would have done that. I don't think that movie was going to get made. And um, no, nobody went to see it. Nobody saw it. Uh, a few, I mean, a few people did, and some people thought it was very good and liked it, but it was basically ignored. And there's a reason for really. It, if, if you want to tell me the movie was shit, I won't argue with you. But I also know that the movie had no support, no marketing support, no advertising, because the guy who was really in charge of that hated it. Anyway, um, so from that, I did a couple of other projects. I wrote a couple of other things. One for HBO, which fell apart because of money, budget. And... Um, then another, another feature that Paramount bought, uh, but they would only make it with an A-list actress. And we got some actresses that were interested in doing it, but they weren't big enough. They couldn't open the movie, right, where right? it was. So I wasn't really doing anything. And then there were some illnesses in my family. And... Uh, The head of Warner Brothers had been after me for 14 years, having coffee and talking to make a Sopranos movie. And he 
right around then he hit me again. And I thought, you know, and my, and my friend Larry Connor said, you, yeah, you should do this. We should, you should work. Let's get back. And I thought, well, this will get made. Yeah. I'll be back in production. So. And that's how I got, and that's how it came back to be. And um, with the with the release of the film, how, um, or hopefully it's going to be it's going to be released. Uh, I think as of this recording, Friday. Friday. Yeah, mm -hmm. Friday. What do you hope to happen? How, how do you hope the fans uh, receive the film? I hope they love it. I hope they love it. We had a premiere in New York. Uh, I've never been through anything like that in my life. Mm -hmm. The amount, the amount of joy, excitement, laughter, suspense. It went over like gang, like gangbusters. That's amazing. That's um, amazing. Un unbelievable. I can't even express it. 2,000 people in the Beacon Theater. Will we ever have another audience like that? No. That's amazing. Now, with all the success you've had over your career, what advice would you give a writer starting out in the business today? Ooh. Well, you have to write. Mm. You can't talk about writing. You can't plan out stories that you don't write. Um, you have to write as much as you can. And there is no simple, no single way to quote unquote, make it. Um, just any opportunity that comes along that brings you closer to the business, say yes. Even if it's not what you're interested in doing, just say yes. You will learn something from it and you'll be one millimeter closer. I hate to even use that phrase, the business. You'll be even closer to, although a lot of people, okay, it's a business. Um, you'll be one millimeter closer to your dream of being an artist. Um, I mean, obviously, if you have to clean toilets, you're going to say no. But, well, I don't know about that. Well, I mean, if you're uh, cleaning toilets in the mailroom, because, <laughs> uh, like, the mailroom's a perfect example. Like that. Yeah, say yes. Because you won't be cleaning toilets for long. You're going to be promoted in the mailroom. And then from the mailroom, you go on. But, you know, that's really a track to being an agent or a producer. Sure, of course, the, of course. The whole mailroom story. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, what? The game has changed so much. The game has changed so much over the years. Uh, the game has changed so much. And, well, we won't go into that. Um, I wish I could say something. That... Well, let me ask you this. Be bold. That's, I guess that just be bold. On the page and in the room or on the street. Great advice. Now, when you're about to sit down to write something, like when you sat, when you sat down to write the, the many saints of Newark, um, how do you 
how do you, do you outline? What is your process when you're writing? Do you outline? Do you start with characters when you're starting a new, a new project or are you starting with plot? How do you approach the craft? Uh, I've done it both ways where we outline, outline the whole movie or TV. Well, each one of the Sopranos episodes mm -hmm. was completely outlined. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were to see the outlines, you would say, this is really like naked. There's hardly anything here. That's true. It was just the scenes in order. Mm -hmm. And then it was the writer's job to bring that to life. I've done it that way, and I've done it where you just start writing. Mm -hmm. And I think probably most of the great writers just start writing. Because they already have a lot of the, the stuff that you have to work on in regards to structure and and subplots. Uh, it's I think what it's about is they they don't really know what they've got. That you only find out what you're doing from writing it. From just going down the path. You only find out. Well, really, in in in, in reality, you really only find out what your movie is or your TV show is uh, after you've edited it. Because all those pieces that make up the show can be re rearranged to a whole different, where the emphasis is completely changed. Mm -hmm. And what you thought it was about isn't what it was about. Because two actors who sparked off each other were not around when you wrote it. But now you see, oh, look at mm -hmm. that relation. That's, you know. Yeah, and, and I know. That's what's so great about it. They call it a plastic medium, and that's what it is. It can be moved all. Yeah, and as like as the old saying goes, you write you you write the st the story three times. Once you write it, once you shoot it, once you edit it, each one is a different different version or draft of the story. Yeah, yeah, you could say. Yeah. Now, exactly. yes. All right. When you write, do, do the characters talk to you? Do they do they talk and you dictate or do you like because I've heard that so many times from writers where they're like I just I'm just a dictator I just do this but is that the way it works for you or do, are you creating the dialogue for them feeling it I've had it happen a couple of times where there was this transcendent experience where I felt that some power was working through me mm -hmm. but that doesn't happen all the time at all. Uh, but do, do the characters speak to me? Like say, hey, David, do this, or David, do that? Is that what you mean? No, like the, the dialogue. Like, you know, two people are sitting in a room and you're just like, like you no, were sitting I, in a room. No, I pictured it. I picture a conversation between Tony and Carmela. Um, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Just talk. Writing <laughs> something to say. You, you you touched on something there real quick when you said you had a transcendent moment, and I've, I've I mean I've had it. So many other writers and creators have it. It's like almost the zone, or when you feel like something is you're channeling something. You're like yeah. when you're writing and you're like, who wrote this? <laughs> this mm -hmm. is a this this I I don't know who wrote this. It almost just spurts out of you yeah. without you actually it's, thinking. Does oh, that happen? It's that like, makes the whole thing worthwhile. It's right those moments when you can, when you can, when you can literally, I don't know, tap into, tap into that thing that brings in the creativity where it's just flowing through you and you're just a conduit almost. I think it's the closest we come 
to being a musician. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And being a musician, I mean, I have always wanted to be one and I have great, uh, what do you call it? Um, jealousy, mm. especially to be one of four musicians and you, you are playing together, mm-hmm. one going off the other and it's coming out of your, and there's no pre, oh, that those moments when you're writing are, are the closest we come to that. Yeah, like I can only imagine Lennon and McCartney. I've seen some of those those sessions when they were just like writing stuff and just like and yeah. you like all of a sudden, hey, hey Jude just showed up, like right. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I mean, those sessions where you're writing mm-hmm. and you think um something's working through me, or when you're finished, you go, "Ooh, I was something's coming through me." I mean, a musician playing. It's yeah. the most like playing music. Got it. It's not like you're. It's all you're, you're feeling all of it. You're not thinking it. Now, is there anything you've learned from your biggest mistake or biggest failure in, in your career? Something that a lesson that you learned from one of those? I don't know. Don't take the money. <laughs> that's a great. That's that's a great. All, yeah. Don't don't do it for the money. Don't do it for the money. All right, and, and where can, and uh, where can people uh, watch uh, the new movie? They're movie theaters. Movie theaters. That's, That's the movie. place. Where... It's also going to be on. I shouldn't even say it. It's also going to be on HBO Max on the mm-hmm. same day, October first. Okay. As it opens at the movie theater, it's going to be on on TV. I'm disgusted by that, but. I would say everybody go see that in the theaters without question. It's really good in the theater. You didn't do that. Um, you could. I could. You could. I couldn't. Yeah. But, uh, but David, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and thank you for all the work you've done, uh, no, thank you. and everything you've done for television and for storytelling in general. So thank you, my friend. Thank you, and those were good questions. Thank you, my friend. Okay. Bye bye. I want to thank David so much for coming on the show and not only for coming on the show, but I want to thank David for creating the Sopranos and really pushing the medium forward, pushing storytelling forward is because of his bravery and also the bravery of HBO and all his producers and collaborators to push story forward and were able to bring us not only many great seasons of the Sopranos, but also all those other shows that I spoke about earlier in the episode. Thank you so much, David. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, please head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 142. And I definitely recommend you guys check out The Many Saints of Newark. It is uh, not only a great prequel to The Sopranos, it's just a really cool film in the way storytelling was done and everything. It's just really great. So definitely go out and check it out in the theaters if you can. But if not, it will be also be on HBO Max. And we've got some other amazing guests coming up on the show later this year as well. Uh, I'm excited. I can't even, I, I wish I could tell you who's coming, but uh, I can't. I'm sworn to secrecy, but I promise you, you guys are going to enjoy. So definitely keep an eye out. Uh, for the rest of this year, at least, for some amazing, possibly legendary uh, filmmakers and screenwriters coming on the show. So thank you again so much. As always, 
keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 